What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Mm. I reckon we have a bit of a showdown, me and you. Really? Yeah. Okay. Really find out who's a better trainer. Ooh, now you've fucking thrown the cat amongst the pigeons, haven't you? Yeah. I reckon we get puppies, mm. brothers or something like that, okay. and have a bit of a competition, see who can raise it the best. Okay. So now that you've thrown the gauntlet out there, where are you thinking that we're going to get these magnificent specimens from? I want to get duchies right. or shepherds. Yep. So if we're going to get them, the only place in the world that anybody should be looking to get mm. a German Shepherd or a Dutch Shepherd from is House Hamburg Shepherds in Germany. Oh, good call. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like this. All right. So now that we've got the dogs, yeah. what's the next part of the evolution? Well, the good news is mm-hmm. they they can send those Shepherds anywhere in the world. Yep. So what about we get one sent here to Australia? Right. You'll train that one. Okay. And I'll get one sent to myself in North America. Mm-hmm. But we're going to need training equipment to train those dogs. Right. So I guess that I have to go and talk to the bullfed. Yeah. So your gear, all your dog training needs, Mm -hmm. because we'll start fresh. We'll get all new everything. Everything. All your dog training needs will be met by Ironswick Dog Quip. Oh, the bullfed himself. Yeah. Okay. So I can get myself some mills, some great leads, some collars. All that Training stuff. devices, treats, balls, whatever I need. Yeah, you'll be able yep. to get that from Ironswick because yep. you're going to be here in Australia. Well, that means that you have to go up north, further north yep. in, in North America yep. and go and see old mate Mach Le Point. Yep, and get everything from Canine everything. Dynamics. Oh, Canine Dynamics. Yep. yep. I'll get the leashes I need, the tugs I need, everything. I think I can even get bite suits. Everything. Yeah, I can get that from Canine Dynamics yep. from in North America. Mm-hmm. There is one... Part of this that is somewhat unfair. Well, you get to hang out with Melanie Benway. Yeah. So I'm actually going to get my dog. Tra- I'm not going to do any of the training. Yep. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to get a play and train mm-hmm. done where Mel's actually just going to come to my house because I'm going to take that dog to Richmond, Virginia. Yep. Ashland, Virginia Ashland. as well. Ashland, Ashland Virginia. Virginia. Yep. So everything both areas. Yeah. Uh, I can be either one of those mm. and I'm just going to go do something else nine to five and she'll come into my home Train that dog. Well, you're sipping cafe just, lattes. Just, just gallivanting yeah. all over gallivanting. The world. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart, and I'm joined in studio today by my co host, Glenn Cook. It's going to be a bit of a noisy one in the background today. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that straight away. <laughs> yeah, but you know that's my thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like video is becoming your thing and yeah. audio has always been my thing. Yeah. And we've got every fucking tradesman you could think of <laughs> turned up on site. It's like the time Jay came to do the yeah. seminar and Ben was here mowing because Ben's here mowing. You can hear a hum in the background. So yeah. I don't know if you can hear it in the background or not. Much they can't as, hear it. <laughs> well, they might. They might. Just at times you might hear buzzers. We've got concreters here who are going to get on their 
little excavator soon. Uh, um, Macho's going off his mind, so there's a lot happening in the background. So just think of it as a live audience. <laughs> yeah. And if it bothers you that much, jump into Patreon, give some dollars, and we'll, we'll keep working on the soundproofing in here. That's right, yes. We'll <laughs> finally get ourselves a whisper room where we won't have any yep. outside influences whatsoever. Yeah, the apocalypse could happen outside and yeah. no one would know. Yeah, the noise thing really pisses me off. I It gets under my skin. <laughs> Evidently. <laughs> Evidently, yeah. All right, this is not Noisegate 2.0. Yeah. This is dog training. Dog training. Mm. Hey, I thought it would be interesting. We have a lot of people reach out. The moment especially, we've talked to sort of a lot about, you know, positive versus balanced training and all that kind of bullshit, mm. right? And we have a lot of listeners that are positive trainers that are balanced curious. Mm. Oh, there you go, dropping that coupon again, <laughs> curious. <laughs> curious. We still need to get somebody who can do the artistry for the Bite Sports Curious. If anybody's interested, we might do a little competition, competition in our Facebook discussion group, the Canine Paradigm discussion group, to see if uh, anybody would generously donate their artistic skills and we can credit them and name them and throw We should do a cash prize. We should do like a cash prize. Well, let's, yeah, we can do, I'm sure we can do something. Yeah. Mm. $1. <laughs> <laughs> no, like uh, we'll figure something out. There'll be a post in, on, on the line, I reckon. Well, I generally, the artist who does it, I generally shower them with merch. So if, if they want to do that, I'll say, oh, some hoodies and t-shirts and, mm-hmm. you know, some socks and undies and towels and, Tapestries. Maybe even a tapestry. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, I think that we have a lot of people who listen to the show, sort of agree with much of what we say, but aren't quite ready to do those things themselves. Mm. I think that's a pretty common listener of ours. Yep. And so what I wanted to do was talk about different ways of managing behaviors when they go wrong. And I want to sort of explore punishment a little bit, but from the angle of we usually talk about why you should use punishment, when you should use punishment, why you should and how effective it can be. But I think sometimes to present a fully balanced argument, we should also talk about things that can go wrong when you shouldn't use punishment, where we do see people using it wrong and the likely fallout of punishment. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I like, you know, to frame the conversation, I thought we could maybe discuss in a couple of contexts, one where you're trying to stop a behavior, you know, an unwanted, undesirable behavior. Mm. And the other is like forms of dealing with an error within training. So I think, you know, again, to sort of cater to the majority of the audience that we can, we have people who train dogs to do stuff. And I think a lot of our listeners are people that do that, like Mm. whether they compete with their dogs or just do it for the fun, whatever. Their dog training to them is more what it is to me in that it's like we're training the dog to do stuff. But then I think- those same people have to live with that dog all the time. And there's people who don't do that stuff, but just deal with the behavioral side of dogs mm. in the training of dogs to you know, lead their best life and not get themselves in trouble, not get themselves hurt, that kind of stuff. So there's huge crossovers. And I think that anybody involved in the teaching of dogs to do cool things also has to know how to manage a dog in day-to-day life. And even if you're not interested in the teaching of dogs to do cool things, you, you know, if you involve with dogs at all, you have to teach that livability piece. So I thought starting with training a dog to do something Mm -hmm. for my money, I think there's kind of three things you can do if something goes wrong in a session and depending on where you fall on the training spectrum would determine which one you would do because they can all be very effective. So let's use the example of a dog going to the stand from the sit, right? So you've taught the dog to do it and 
in our example, let's assume that the dog knows it for sure, mm -hmm. right? Like there's beyond a question of a doubt in the environment that we're in, in the context with the reinforcers that we're giving, the dog knows the behavior, has performed it many, many times in the past in the exact same context. Everything is in position. You know that it's a refusal at that time, right? The dog has, for whatever reason, decided not to do it, even though he knows full well what to do. Mm -hmm. I think- if you're a tools off, like a hands off person, no tools, you're relying then on essentially punishment to convince the dog not to do that again in the future. So like every, you know, dog training, no matter where you fall on the scale, I think is about consequences, consequences, positive and negative for action and inaction. And I think anybody who really trains dogs has to agree with that. It's just what those consequences would be, would mm. be where people want to differ. So, you know, some people, and you certainly see this online, some people would say, oh, I never would punish my dog for not following through, like on a command that we give or whatever. I would just give him another cookie and tell him I love him. And that's cool but we're not having the conversation with you. Like we're talking about people who want reliable behaviors mm. and uh, invested in the training to achieve that. So I think for the most part, if your dog is no equipment on and you don't want to use positive punishment, you're kind of relying then on some sort of negative punishment to make sure the dog doesn't do that again. Because if you were a person that just sort of asks a second time or ignores that that behavior went wrong, that nothing happened, there's a lot of risk involved in doing that. The first would be, and probably the least problematic would be that the dog thinks I can not do it untold, like that's allowed. And within this sequence of behaviors, like if you, you know, you sit down, stand, roll over, come here, heal, all these kinds of things. If you ask for one of them to happen, it doesn't happen. And mm. then you just ask for something else and you know, the dog knew it at best, the dog is learning. I'm allowed to just blow off certain commands when I feel like mm. it. If the dog does the wrong thing at worst, it could become a superstitious behavior where the dog thinks, you know, I'm not just allowed to, but meant to, right? So like a, a, an error that goes unaddressed, especially within a sequence of behaviors can very easily become a part of that sequence of behavior via a superstitious behavior. Mm. You agree with all that? Yeah. The other concern that I have there is when dogs start blowing things off, you're setting up a chain of extinction. Yeah. So the problem there is that, which people don't realize that is actually happening, that they think, oh, you know, it happened once, no big deal. And it's usually no big deal sometimes when it happens once because there's a lot of external considerations and even internal considerations that you could think of sometimes. Like there are times where generally the dog doesn't hear you. You know, like you've put up good examples before when you fired off rocket launches and your biology, you're like your brain and, and your ears and your ear canal has deliberately closed over yeah. so it can't hear that loud whooshing noise as the mm -hmm. rocket fires through. And there are times where dogs become adrenalized and uh, they're motivated elsewhere looking around at something else and all of a sudden selectively their body goes into a state of drive and they mm -hmm. can't hear. Yep. There are good arguments to suggest those sort of things do happen. So you could say once, okay, twice, maybe, three times, four times. How many times are we going to say it's okay for the dog to start ignoring you before an extinction process starts to set in yep. where the behavior starts to frag? Mm -hmm. That's what happens. The behavior fragments. So what happens then is that you start to find there's a compromise in the form and the ability of the true behavior that you originally set up inside the dog. So those sort of things 
have to be considered. You have to be aware of them and you have to take responsibility because fundamentally the only reason the dog follows the behavior set with a cue is because you programmed it to be that way. Yes. Like that's by design something that you decided that you wanted. Your English word, if we're speaking English, because there's, you know, there's 149 countries that now follow us around the world. So <laughs> there's a lot of people who speak different languages to their dog. So what, whatever language, whatever, whatever cue, whatever cue, exactly. Whatever cue you set with the behavior is something by design, something that you structurally did. doesn't matter if the dog can instinctually do the behavior or it's a complex skill where it has no form functional survivability mode to the dog. It's something that we did by design. Omar Van Mueller is a classic example of somebody who really pushes mm-hmm. the boundaries there. But if you get back to just classic behaviours, so we establish the word sit, the English word sit, then we follow through with the mechanical behaviour of the dog doing the behaviour. So it's something by design we've created. We say the word, the dog does the action. Hey, presto, it's all done. Yeah, We're all happy. We've decided on a time frame of saying, you know, when I say sit, I want the dog to do it within a two-second window. Some people would stretch that out and say up to five seconds. I'm just a pet person. I don't really care. But if you're a high-stakes competitor, the faster that behavior happens in line with the cue, the better for you. But then you've got to understand when you allow once for the mistake to happen, okay, we've all agreed that's okay. Two, maybe. There might be some outside circumstances, not in competition though, because that's costing you and mm-hmm. that will ruin the game. But let's talk between now when you're at home and or when you're a, a pet dog person with your dog. Three times, now the problem starts to happen. Four times, they've definitely got a problem. Five times, all right, now we're starting a blow right outside the window. So now that whole element has really turned into something that by the dog's design, because you're allowing it to happen too, you're a witness to this degradation happening in front of your eyes. Something has to be done about it. And yeah. this is where we need to start talking about adequate and appropriate forms of punishment. So if you're got no tools, you're plus R training, Mm. you're relying on then like a non-reinforcing marker. There has to be something that you can say to the dog, you know, and most people, this is where a lot of people say, oops, or no, or whatever. Mm. And it's like, hey, that is not going to lead to reinforcement. And within the cycle of punishment, it's negative punishment, but what we usually then have to do to be effective in that moment is take away any forward progress in any behaviors, Mm. right? You're relying on the dog making a mistake and then you saying, hey, we can go no further. Because of that error, I'm certainly not going to reinforce you for not doing the behavior, Mm. but I'm not going to ask you for another behavior and ignore the problem within there because we know from creating behavioral chains that anything that happens within the chain that ultimately leads to reinforcement is, you know, becomes a part of the chain and the whole chain gets reinforced. Mm. So if we tell our dog to stand from the sit, he doesn't. And then we go, oh, well, no big deal. And then let him down and then tell him to stand and pay for that stand. That's a huge problem because now the dog has learned like that whole sequence was reinforced. And in that sequence, I made an error or, you know, willingly didn't do the right thing Mm. and still led to reinforcement. So everything then totally fine so we have to stop the progression we can't allow we can't ask the dog for anything extra we can't ask for any more and we need to you know give that non-reinforcing marker now non-reinforcing marker is quite stressful for a dog right and we know from esther schultz mm, study cortisol yeah, levels, yeah. That, that is going to be a, a fairly aversive experience for the dog mm. especially if the dog is 
a highly willing participant of the training like it should be because, you know, the way that I would train and most people listening is that we build as much desire for some form of reinforcer prior to ever turning that into a, you know, the desi- using that desire to train a behavior. So by the time the dog knows some behaviors, he's a very willing participant in the training, mm. especially if we're tools off because it's the only way that we're motivating him is using positive reinforcement. So by then saying to the dog in that moment, not nah, we're, we're finished, we're stopping. And we're going to reset this scenario. That can be quite well, very aversive to the dog. That can have a very high, uh, like that would that will cause a very high spike in cortisol. It's going to be a stressful experience for the dog. And then, what you then have to do is reset somehow. You have to go back to like a last kind of you know, your last breadcrumb in the training, and that might be the position in which you reinforce last, or it could be the you know the last time that the dog performed a really. Uh, good version of the behavior, whatever it is. So you tell the dog no, and you you have to then stop the, the training as it's going, intervene with the dog and put the dog back into the next position. And so ideally the dog has this sense of loss as to like, I'm no longer, not only am I no longer just doing like moving forward towards the reinforcer, but from not doing what I was told, I'm actually now being brought further away from the reinforcer. And that's how you deal with this sort of thing. And it's to- you can do that totally hands off. You say no to the dog, you bring- call him back to another position. And it's like observably, it's hands off and it appears to be not intrusive to the dog for mm. sure, but it is incredibly stressful. And the risks involved in that are that you can really cause dips in motivation for sure. All right. What's one of the biggest risks that I see in it is using non-reinforcing markers without guidance as to what will cause the reinforcement can cause confusion. And at the minimum, it will slow down the dog's response times because now he's going to be thinking a lot more and he wants to avoid that. That's an aversive experience. So he wants to avoid that. He's going to be more calculated in his decisions and hopefully make the right decision, which gives you opportunity to reinforce on the next repetition. You know, an example of this is very commonly used even by people who do use tools, especially with young dogs in the healing is, you know, you're taking steps along and the dog dips its head down and then looks back up, that's got all the same dangers that that could become, at the minimum, the dog might think I'm allowed to do this. And at the worst, the dog might think I'm meant to do this. It's and could it becomes become superstitious. superstitious. Yeah. And then you get a dog that intentionally looks down on the fifth step or something like that. We really have to discuss the problem with the superstitious behaviours because mm. I've used an example of Ladybug with her lizard when she goes behind the door. Mm-hmm. And then there are probably listeners out there who can identify and understand what a superstitious behaviour is because their dog is presenting with one. The problem with the superstitious behaviours, they're a son of a bitch because they're so hardwired yeah. and so well, variably reinforced that it becomes so much of a high dopamine cycle for the dog because then the dog really believes, you know, like this is going to happen for me eventually. Yeah. Now, just to refresh people who have heard me talk about this, Ladybug once found a lizard behind the door and killed it. She's a prey monster with things like that. Mm-hmm. So during September to about March, we have these giant skinks that come in the house and they're literally everywhere on the property, like everywhere. You could almost step on them sometimes. They're that brazen and there's so many of them. Mm-hmm. So one day behind the door in the office, she found one, she killed it. And for about the seasons of the lizard's, they all went into hibernation. It went into winter, but she never stopped checking behind the door. Mm. Only periodically. I'd tell her off for doing it because she'd keep going behind the door, then scratching in there and, you know, like I'd try and stop her from doing it. But it, in her mind, it was so strongly reinforced. And I thought this will eventually go away. We'll eventually see extinction there because what's the chances of her seeing a lizard behind the door again? Mm. Well, fuck me dead. 
when the summertime came around, she found another lizard behind the door yeah. and therefore it reinforced the superstitious behaviour. So I had another year cycle of her and she's doing it now. Like yeah. it's summer season, she's seen lizards outside so she's expecting one to come inside out the door. So those sort of things, once they creep into your behavioural set, they really create havoc for you because the chances of getting rid of them are quite extreme sometimes. Yeah. Well, that's the power of jackpotting and single event learning, mm, right? Like, absolutely. Well, that's what it is in a form. It's a single event learning yeah, process. From a super high value reinforcer. And it's something that you didn't want or didn't anticipate getting. Yeah. I think especially superstitious behaviors from a you know, training standpoint is in training a dog to do monkey drills and whatever. It's especially difficult to get rid of one when it exists within a wanted behavior. Mm, so like, like the barking. Yeah. Like barking or, or dipping your head in the heel because- yeah. If you let that establish, and that's why this is so important, we say that you got to get on top of these kind of things early. And, mm. you know, this is the talent code. It's the deep practice whereby it's not getting it right every time. It's addressing every error as it happens. Yep. And so that, you know, you, you don't have to get it right every time, but you can't get it wrong, right? You can, you can get to the point where it's like, hey, that's incorrect. And I have to address that so that you don't develop that as being part of the sequence. Mm. Big one is exactly as I say, that dipping the head in the healing. A lot of dogs, you would think they're meant to. Some dogs think they can and do, but when you see it consistently, like a certain point, and you see that very commonly at the like four or five pace mark, mm. a lot of dogs will dip their head because they think, oh, I'm meant to do that at this point because that's led to reinforcement. And then to get rid of that once it's really established becomes very difficult because if, if the dog has like a little compartment in its mind labeled healing and he's got all these criteria in his mind of what healing is, and that might be, you know, straight body, my right shoulder pressed against your left knee. He's got this criteria of it mm. and one of those criteria is dipping his head at the fifth step then it can be really hard to convince him that that's not a criteria of healing but everything else still is of course it's not impossible it's just difficult and there's a lot more risks involved in that because there is going to have to be some form of punishment for that right or an aversive consequence tools on or off either way there's got to be a reason that the dog doesn't want to do that right mm. it's very difficult to find just a purely positive reason for that you know, so you are going down a, a path that makes it – it's hard to come back from. So addressing it as early as possible is the way to go. Yeah. So we've discussed that, that it's – if you're not going to use any tools, any equipment, you are relying then on negative punishment and you have to be very cautious. You have to intervene very quickly when the dog does something that – he knows for sure, you know, he's, you're going to ask for it. He doesn't do it. There has to be a consequence that makes him think I'm not going to do that again. And that consequence usually is the withholding. And it's not necessarily the withholding of the reinforcer. It's withholding because you hadn't given him the reinforcer. It's withholding of progression towards the reinforcer, mm. right? Like you can't keep going. We can't allow this to keep going. We're going to take a step back. You're going to experience a loss. And that means going back to the start of the chain. I think when a lot of people think about negative punishment, they think that I have to take something from the dog because, you know, that's the sort of programming. But that thing you take from the dog doesn't have to be physical. Like mm. it doesn't have to be an actual item that gets taken from the dog. It's a cessation of something yeah. that the dog is expecting to do. Yeah, that's right. Do you know like, the problem with that though? And I know you know what the problem with that, for, but the problem for the listeners at home who are, I would say inexperienced, and I don't mean that as an insult. I'm just saying that there are people with varying levels of experience in training animals, mm -hmm. people, whatever. The problem is that the first time you do it, the dog has no correlation to it. That's right. And that maybe even the second time you do it, the dog still is thinking, well, what is it? Like, I'm not quite sure what it is. 
you almost have to become a master of timing when you're doing this for the dog to understand the cessation of behavior happens at this point every single time. Well, the, the cessation of the reward of getting the keep going and, and maintaining what it was supposed to do in order to get the reinforcer. The problem is, is that if your timing is out or you're just terrible with timing, there can be such a variable there that the dog can say, what is it? Is it behind curtain A, B or C? I yeah. don't know because, you know, you're so infrequent with your timing that I didn't know whether it was for stepping like this, for looking like this. So then the dog is in an act of guessing what it actually is. And that's why I say you have to be a master of timing mm. because if it is that the dog dipped its head in the heel for argument's sake, then as soon as that happens, it's got to end. It's got to end at that session. And you might have a cue, as you said, like oops or whatever it is to say to the dog, which is generally best because then it becomes more surgical like a clicker. Then you can suggest to the dog, that's what it is. That's why it's stopping. Fuck you. Yeah. You know, you finish the behavior. But the problem that I see when people are doing this and when they do choose to go in a force free, which is fine, you, horses for courses, you do what you've got to do. But the problem is, is that people say, well, this is taking such a long time. Yeah. But that's the issue. It takes such a long time. And that's where the frustration creeps in. And that's where you see the dogs rarely ever been surgically clean with it because they're still in a guessing game. Now, I know that there are expert trainers out there and their dogs have cottoned on to this and they're aware of what's going on. And they're very good with using that adverse marker, you know, to suggest to the dog, that's it. You did it there. And the dog understands that whole principle and it's become quite operant around it as well. But there are a ton of people who aren't like that. Mm. That's where we need to explain things better to them, to caution them more. Like, it's fine you've chosen to train a dog in this style, but you've got to be aware of the pitfalls around it. Yeah, and I think training a dog to do stuff in that manner, it's reasonably easy. Let's talk about the specifics of how you actually do that negative punishment. And Mm. say we stick with that example of the heel with the dog dipping its head, because it's a good one, is that you have to play the character of – it's stopping as well, mm. right? So like for me, if I'm doing this and I do it regularly, this is a, a, a fantastic technique I use quite a lot and used just a couple of months ago with on a military working dog with like devastatingly, well not devastate, like amazing results yep. because it was barking in the healing, not dipping the head, but same kind of thing. On the approach to a target, it gets, you know, like overwhelmed, gets excited and barks and gives everyone away. Yep. And in the past, I've fixed that with other dogs in various different ways, but using negative punishment is everybody stops the whole team. Everybody's tooled up, guns up, pointed at the target. Everybody's rushing in there like John Wick style. Mm -hmm. And the moment the dog barks, everybody like alters their posture. All the cues go away. Yeah. Everything Mm. stops and everybody looks at the dog Mm. like slunch posture, like, Oh, you fucked it. Yeah. Right. And everything stops. And the dog is just like, Hey, what, like what happened? And there's no way that that's exactly as you just said, then there's no way that that's ever going to work in one repetition. Mm. The dog for sure has to then like go, fuck, that was a very aversive experience. I don't know why everybody just stopped. We were on our way to do my favorite thing. I got super excited and barked and suddenly my favorite thing just disappeared. Like it just stops. Everybody changes their posture. The handler even steps away from the dog and looks at the dog like disappointed Everything that the dog wanted just suddenly evaporates and disappears. And doing that via the handler and their supporting assets, body posture is super effective. Mm. But as I say, that's never going to work in one rep because then the dog has to go like, everything just got taken away from me. I'm not sure why. We reset. We go back to the start. And if, he, of course, he does it again, and that's when he can, the exact same thing happens again. And he can start to narrow down, wait, I think I'm controlling this, mm. right? Like it's because I did something that this is happening. 
I don't like what's happening. I'm having everything taken from me. And in that instance, like I say, it's not like anything was physically taken from the dog. He's just it's not just, meeting his objective. Yeah, he just realises in that moment, like, we are not headed where I thought we were headed. Yep. And, it, you know, two, certainly on the third repetition, the dog starts to go, hang on, this is very, like, and the dog is operant and starts making a classical assumption, right? So mm. he realises my barking is taking everything from me puts that together in a classical function and says, if I don't bark, nothing will be taken from me. Right. So therefore he shuts up and continues and gets what he wanted. And then he realizes, right. So it's a very, it's a, it's an excellent technique to do, but it relies on being able to take from the dog, right? And mastery of timing. Yeah. The timing has to be good, but I mean, in dog training, timing has to be good no matter what. Timing is critical. That's the catch cry. What's yeah. the better word for that? Well, it's the mantra has the to mantra. be. The mantra. That's the mantra. Exactly. That's but I mean, that's true of everything. I think sometimes when we talk about punishment, people mm. get really hung up on the timing aspect of it, right? Especially people who are anti any use of punishment and probably don't realize that they are using a lot of it. They say that, oh, if the timing's incorrect, you'll punish the wrong thing and the dog will become aggressive and all that. And like, that could be true. We'll talk about fallout of it later. Mm. But the same is true of reinforcement, right? So like, you can't, you can't say like, Punish, your timing has to be amazing with punishment or you won't get success without also agreeing that timing has to be also correct and amazing with reinforcement or you won't get success. Absolutely, right? mm. Punishing the wrong thing is just as dangerous as reinforcing the wrong thing and vice versa. Mm. I think that we've kind of talked about that negative punishment piece. If you don't want to use any tools, that's your only option really, mm. right? Of course, the option is to ignore it and carry on, but you're not at the level to have this conversation if that's your option, right? If that's your preferred technique, good for you, but the rest of it's irrelevant to you. Yep. Then imagine you do want to use tools. You have an option of a positive punishment in that moment, right? Mm. Now that would be what like Bart would refer to as the classic sort of popo nay training. If you've taught everything positive reinforcement and then in the moment the dog does something wrong, you punish the dog you're kind of relying on that disobedience to be very calculated and a choice. Mm -hmm. In my experience, for the most part, if the dog is distracted or you know, his motivations lie elsewhere, if you've only taught him to do a behavior for positive reinforcement and then when he doesn't do the behavior, applying punishment in that moment is not that effective for making the behavior happen especially if you need it to happen right there and then mm. because what you're punishing is disobedience and you're hoping that by the definition of punishment to reduce the frequency or likelihood of the behavior, there's less disobedience in the future, mm. right? But it's still not going to make the behavior happen right there and then. And I think that is sort of some of the problems that we see with people who do use a prong collar or an e-collar or whatever, having an expectation that they can make a behavior happen in that moment if they haven't had a learning phase of pressure for that behavior. Would you say that's handler dependent or generalized? Uh, I'd say that's generalized. If you haven't used any pressure in a learning phase, if there's been no negative reinforcement, in the learning phase of a behavior, mm -hmm. when that behavior is done incorrectly or not at all, a pressure that's applied after it will likely be perceived as a punishment for disobedience. Mm -hmm. And it, it very unlikely means that the dog will unprompted do the behavior. What it, does mean is that the situation may have to be reset. The dog could be re-prompted to do the behavior and he's more likely to do it then because mm -hmm. he's less likely to be disobedient because we punish disobedience, right? Yep. And so the risk then is that the dog kind of who hasn't felt pressure before is getting punished and punishment has to reduce the frequency and likelihood of something. And if it isn't 
disobedience, then you're in trouble, right? Because if the dog is just sort of, his motivation is elsewhere, he's distracted in that moment, he didn't hear you, all those things that you just said that it could potentially be as to why he didn't perform the behavior. If he's punished after that, there's risk that he associates that punishment to the behavior itself or the session, or there's lots of different associations that could be made, right? I think that when we go for positive punishment after a behavior is not followed through, you are relying, and the only instance in which that works is when it is straight up disobedience, when the dog says, no, I'm not doing it, and there is no other influences that would affect why he's not doing it. Mm. And I think instances of that are very rare, very rare. Mm. And so I think that's where we see, that is, in my opinion, one of the not problems, but that's one of the weak points of people who would train with tools like that in that the dog doesn't always know what they're asking or why it's being punished for getting it. You agree with that? Yeah, I do agree with that. I think that a large degree of where people are having problems with this or finding themselves in a problematic situation is because they're seeing things through their eyes about how they would deal with a problem themselves instead of understanding where the dog's mindset is at the time. That's kind of been a mantra that we've discussed on the show so many times is that I really believe that some of the biggest problems that I've seen in my years as a dog trainer and not understood it at the time, but some of the biggest problems that I've seen is that people are relaying their thoughts and intuitions on their dog, but not really understanding the mechanics of what's going on inside Mm -hmm. the dog's head. And that becomes a dangerous territory when we're starting to rely on that information. The unfortunate side of that for any dog handler and especially new people is that the amount of time it takes Mm -hmm. to understand that, to get a feel for it. So it's not that people are deliberately doing these things with the onset or the belief that I've just got to punish my dog. No, of course not. They just don't know any better. Yeah. That's why it takes, there's an extraordinary amount of feel that's got to be involved in that if that explains the situation well yeah or intuition Mm -hmm. but the unfortunate thing of with that is that it's such a pragmatic thing because you can explain it to people to the cows come home and they just may not ever really understand it until they're physically handling a dog you know until the physical manifestation of reinforcement and punishment or consequences, let's just describe it as consequences, has to be brought into play here. And I think that's that's one of the areas that we really, when we're trying to immersify a student in the understanding of how to have a better relationship with their dog, whether it be through reinforcement or punishment or just consequences, as we said before, that's one of the things that we really need to create a better uptake. Yeah. So at the point of disobedience, we've talked about negative punishment mm. and how that can be super effective. Mm-hmm but has the downside of not being able to actually bring on the behavior, Mm -hmm. right? So like you have to reset, you have to tell the dog, nope, that's incorrect. We're no longer going to progress. We have to bring you back to like your your, your last breadcrumb of success, put the dog there, reset and carry on. If you're going to use positive punishment, there's a chance, but it's slight that application of the positive punishment will make the dog correct, right? Mm-hmm. That he'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, my bad. I did the wrong thing. I chose not to do it. Now I choose to do it. Mm. That's very unlikely. And more than likely, you're going to end up in a very similar position as using negative punishment that you're going to have to reset. So you provide the aversive to the dog and say, hey, like, don't do this again. The dog goes, yep, I choose not to. I don't want to go down this path again. I'll not make the same decision given the next opportunity. Very small chance that he may actually do the right thing, right? Mm. 
but he will very likely do the right thing on the next repetition, exactly like with negative punishment. Only, you know, the risk is, as we say with all punishment, we just set it with the negative one as well, is that it could take a couple of goes before the dog actually isolates down. This is exactly what I'm getting punished mm. for. And that's why I think punishment needs to be really effective and measured and like not, you know, like we'll talk about out of behavior things later on, that like hand of God correction and that kind of stuff. But I don't know that they're as effective as, like an aversive experience that the dog says, yeah, I get it. Like I got it. I, I, they stay well below their threshold of, you know, stress to diminish understanding. And they're like, yeah, I got it. I, I won't do that again. The other way is that sometimes you do need the behavior to happen there and then. Mm. Right. And so this is you know, what I would argue. And most balanced trainers sort of lean towards the same nowadays anyway, because the information is getting out there is that in order for you to use pressure and now let's say it's a prong collar, e collar, it doesn't matter to bring on a behavior after it has been asked for and not delivered is that there has to be a learning phase of pressure. So negative reinforcement has mm. to have been used at some point and the dog understand I turn off that pressure via the action of the behavior. Now that could, you know, like I say, with negative reinforcement, you don't need to, I certainly was guilty of this when I first started learning about it, is you think that it's always you know, a highly aversive, right? But it doesn't need to be at all. It can, it has to be something that the dog wants to turn off and we shouldn't hide from the word aversive. Like it, it, it has to be that. It's a yin point. and yang relationship. Yeah. You cannot have light without darkness. Yeah. The, the two of them exist and it's a symbiotic relationship that exists whether you like it or not. Just on the negative reinforcement side of things, just quickly, you would be surprised how much negative reinforcement you use on a regular basis without actually wanting oh, totally, to identify yeah. it. So that's kind of the silly thing about it is that people who don't want to use it because they identify the word and that, you know, like it's like a sharpness of a word that penetrates their mind that they think, oh, I just don't want to use this because it's related to some form of aversive or some kind of punishment yet they'll be using it frequently without the day. And they'll kind of say, oh, yeah, but I'm not anticipating it like that or controlling it like that. But whether you are or aren't, it's still in existence and it's still happening around you. Yeah. Food's a funny one. I was having a conversation with someone about this the other day that for the most part we consider food positive reinforcement. Mm. And certainly there are times, say of myself, where I'm sitting on the couch and I go, ooh, I want a piece of chocolate. So I'll go and eat a piece of chocolate. And to me, like that's a, a positive reinforcement that I'm but seeking there's still out. negative reinforcement happening there. Well, but it could be like, you know, for sure, but that would be getting deep into the weeds, yeah. right? But even on the surface, we can still say there are times when I eat food just because I want the delicious taste of the food. Mm. And there are times when I eat food just because I know I need the calories. Mm-hmm. And so one is the same thing. The act of eating is in one instance, you know, highly appetitive and positive reinforcement. And the other is just because I know I'll wake up in the middle of the night hungry or, you know, like everybody's probably come home drunk one night and made themselves a ridiculous meal of baked beans and eggs and nonsense (laughs) because you know, like if I don't do this, my hangover will be worse. So it's not that you're like, oh, I want this delicious food. It's that you're trying to keep at bay the hangover that will come via eating. So like it's the same act. We're still Mm. eating, but there's very different motivations for doing. You just invoked a lot of memories of um, (laughs) midnight fry up. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Right. And they're like kebab on the way home. (laughs) Like you don't want that. You just know that that's going to put you in better state for the future. Who says you don't want that? (laughs) A delicious kebab with garlic sauce. Yum. You're just trying to keep at bay a hangover. Yeah. 
The third option that you have is that if you have taught the behavior and there's been a learning phase of negative reinforcement in the behavior, when the behavior is not done, a pressure that's applied after that is this kind of spinning wheel, the blurring line between a positive punishment and a negative reinforcement mm. because the dog then, it should bring on the behavior. And that's when you know, Nipopo people would call that a correction at that point because the dog knew what you were asking. We asked him to do it. He didn't do it. Then we apply a pressure that is familiar to him and he knows, oh, I turned that off fire doing this action. I'll do that action and turn off this pressure, mm. right? So to the observer, that kind of seems like the same thing as the positive punishment piece, right? The dog didn't do it. He gets a pop on the collar and now he does it. But that will only work if there's been, what well, for the most part, there's exceptions, of course, right? But for the most part, if there has been a learning phase that involved negative reinforcement, that the dog then can make that association to the pop and go, yeah, I know how to turn this off. I'll do it. A lot of people don't agree with that, but they do it themselves anyway. Like when mm -hmm. you watch their training, they go like, no, I've never taught negative reinforcement. I just use a flat collar, whatever. But that flat collar has a level of tension when they're bringing on the behavior, right? And so they are using negative reinforcement. They're just not using it via a tool that they recognize as a tool of negative reinforcement. Mm. Those three options, all of them work. And from someone like me, I use them all. Like I absolutely use all three of those things depending on what's going on. And I use, depending on where the dog is at in its level of training, yep. what tools I am allowed to and able and willing to use on that dog, mm. as well as like how, how badly I need the behavior to happen right there and then. Yep. So take, for example, I ask my dog to, to track, right? And he knows how to track, but he just gives me that perving look of like, nah, I'm busy looking around over here. I have to decide in that moment which what's my consequence here, right? So if I need my dog to track right now, negative punishment is not going to be helpful, right? Because I need it to happen. I can't take him away from the environment. Like if it's a- Because that rewards him. Because then he's thinking, well, I didn't really want to do it. Exactly. So I'm getting rewarded. Exactly. So and your the reason, belief of punishment actually turned into a form of reinforcement for that's the That's right. And the reason that he's not- tracking would be because he's like distracted by these environmental things that are happening around him. But those things are happening in the environment in which I need him to track. So I can't remove those. Mm. Right. So that's where that one falls over. Okay. We can't use that. That's a funny relationship where if you think about it and do a little breakdown, getting taken away from the track could be reinforcing getting taken away from the things he wanted in an environment that could be punishing. Yeah. So when you look at the breakdown and the symbiotic relationship between all of those, you've actually punished the dog and reinforced the dog for the wrong things. Yeah. You got it crisscrossed around. This is where the human comprehension of it isn't taking into consideration the canine comprehension yeah. of it. And either way, I'm not going to be able to make tracking happen right there and then. Now, the reason that I would use the negative punishment piece in that space would be, and, and I probably wouldn't even think of it in that moment as negative punishment. It would be because I would identify the dog's not ready, mm. right? Like we're not ready for this. I have gone too far. These environmental um, stresses or motivators or whatever are too high for my level of training at this point. So we can't continue. I'm going to stop and reset mm. and I'm going to, you know, find a new location or whatever it is, but this isn't going to happen, Right. So then that's the negative punishment piece. The positive punishment piece is probably one that I probably wouldn't use in this point because that's unlikely to make the dog track again, right? Mm. Now, I could try and reduce the, like via positive punishment, I could try and reduce the dog's interest into the external motivators that is preventing him from tracking. 
But I would argue at that point, there's more risk than reward in that space that you're going to create like the idea of tracking being aversive. And there's lots of various things that could come unstuck. Mm. If I were unable to reduce or change the environment, whatever, if I need my dog to track now, negative reinforcement is the only thing that's going to make him track. Punishment is not going to make him track, right? Negative reinforcement is the only thing that's going to allow us to do that. But if it's that I need him to track here today and I haven't taught the act of tracking can turn off negative reinforcement, then it's still not going to work, mm. right? Because I needed a learning phase of negative reinforcement to make the tracking happen. So that's why I think that as a, like a rounded trainer, you need all these tricks up your sleeve because mm. you're going to use different ones at different times. Yep. And you can do a combination of them. And so for me, when I'm asking a dog to do anything, right, and it doesn't matter the behavior, I need to know exactly where I am in that progression of learning that behavior versus practicing that behavior and necessarily doing that behavior for the intended outcome in that moment, because all of that is going to vary what I'll do. Mm. So before I ask a dog to do anything, I need to know right there and then for sure does he know this or am I teaching it? Because if I'm teaching it, I can't use any punishment. There's no yep. way I can do that, right? Because I'm, I'm still just teaching it. Now, if he's not doing it and I expected that he would, I could potentially now layer in some negative reinforcement because that's where I would say, hey, I thought you would get this. You're not getting it. I'm offering you the positive reinforcement that it made it work yesterday or you know 10 minutes ago. So now here's some help, some guidance into that behavior via negative reinforcement. Yeah, which is very mild. Yeah, that's right. Mm. But by doing that, that's what's going to allow me to give him a correction later on when I do need the behavior mm. to happen, right? But so then I've got like that branch plan in my mind. Am I teaching this or does he know it? I'm teaching it. Okay, I can't use punishment. I'm definitely using negative reinforcement. Then I go, okay, no, he knows it, right? He knows it for sure. Then I have to make the decision about is this a training session where I'm just doing this for the practice of doing it or do I need this to happen right now. Yeah. Because if it's a training session, then I'm, I might use punishment. That's where I would probably, and for me, I would probably stack negative punishment and positive punishment together. I would isolate the dog. I would take away his opportunity, continue the progression. And that's where I'll be like, Hey man, you got to like create an aversive experience, right? Mm. To the dog where he's like, Oh, I don't want that to happen again. But because it's in training and I don't need the behavior to happen now, I can get away with doing that. And I want to make the act of not doing what he's told aversive so that he does what he's told in the future. Yep. But if I am, and this is why I was using tracking as an example, if I'm a policeman and I need my dog to track now, then it's got to be a correction. It's got to be negative reinforcement mm. that makes it happen now because punishment won't make it happen. Now it makes it more likely to happen in the future, but only negative reinforcement, which can look a lot like punishment to an observer. And it can be the exact same pop on the exact same prong collar in the exact same context. It just means that there has to have been a learning phase of negative reinforcement to prepare the dog for that correction to make the dog, make the behavior happen. I think one of the huge highlights throughout this conversation is distinction. Mm. And that's one of the areas that people really need to get heavily involved in. There's books on this very topic and it's called Going From Good to Great. I was in Clubhouse the other day and I was listening to, it was a, um, a veterinary group and they were actually talking about similar subject matter to this, about talking about training because there were quite a few trainers and mm -hmm. veterinary behaviorists in there and they were talking about high-level training versus standardized training. To put that in perspective, what they were talking about was the amount of people who do high stakes 
such as competition, police work, detection, mm-hmm. high stakes work. The difference there is that you're talking about thousands of people, thousands of people, mm. high amount of thousands of people. The difference is that there's a lot of people out there that we're talking about into the multiple millions yeah. who don't get this and don't understand this. And that's a very frustrating angle for us to be at because they're often the ones who are critical of this. Yeah. They're often the ones that look at the work and say, I don't understand what I'm seeing here. I'm not going to make the time to understand what I'm seeing here. Therefore, I'm going to be critical online about it. I'm not trying to make this into dangerous territory, but it does highlight, you know, when we start talking about active distinctions in knowing what you're looking at and how to apply this. Because fundamentally, if I talk about my own pilgrimage in developing a much better understanding of negative reinforcement, I admit, as long as I've been in, in training, it wasn't until I encountered BART and started to look into that and you and I had much more conversations about it. Like our, I think our conversations around negative reinforcement became at such a cerebral level that we're really deep diving and unpacking things that I thought, wow, I've never really considered that. Like I had to go away and reanalyze everything that I was doing and even look back on history and think, fuck, I thought that was positive punishment, but it was actually negative reinforcement. Yeah. There are times where I've had these conversations with people and, you know, like there've been people who have been in the industry for a long time And even them, you know, like they're highly resistant to understanding the variations between a positive punishment and a negative reinforcement. And even though they may have a reasonable idea on what negative punishment is, it just expands everything. Like everything, it's kind of like the matrix. You think you've unpacked everything about it and then all of a sudden there's a whole new world just behind those doors. And you open it and think, holy shit, I'm back at the basement again. And this is where it does give you distinction and perception on this whole paradigm. Then you look at it and you think to yourself, okay, now my belief system of where I thought I knew what the dog understands, now I have a much deeper understanding of it. Now I can truly be empathetic with the dog because now I'm really hardwired into thinking about what the dog is anticipating next. And this is where I think it makes you great dog people, you know, and that is the distinction between good to great is because you've really migrated like a an entirely different level of seeing things through the perception of how the dog sees the world. Mm. Because until that time, there are so many errors that can be made. And this is where you do get those inlaid superstitious behaviors. And that is a matter of you inlaying that. It's not a matter of the dog just doing it. Like it didn't happen for no reason. It happened for a reason. And then the belief system that the dog marked on top of that, then the dog thinks, well, I'm supposed to do this. And the feeling of anticipation of the reinforcer coming at some time, it's going to happen eventually. You know, like for the dog, it's such high stakes Mm. that it thinks, well, Every now and then I really need to try this behavior in the hope that the reinforcer will resurface and then I didn't do it in vain. And even though you look at it and go, oh, you stupid dog, that's the concept of not understanding some of the delicacies of these matters. You look at it and you think the dog is just stupid. He's just an idiot. He just does stupid things. Well, no, the dog did it for a reason. Like everything is connected and there's a reason behind everything. That's where the majestic process of it really starts to unfold and unveil itself in front of you. But it takes time for you in your journey to understand this. For you, it's quite fortunate it's happening now. For me, it's unfortunate it happened so late (laughs) in my career. But it's still fortunate that it happens at some stage. Yeah, You know, like these are times where you wish you could go back in time and speak to your younger self and say, mate, you are going to change the world so quickly with this. 
But I could almost guarantee that there will be people throughout history that said that through everything, through breakthroughs in medicine, breakthroughs in technology. Look where we are now. I can only tell you the things that have unfolded since I was a kid, you know, like even having this computer here and these microphones and this iPhone and everything, like all of that was science fiction when I was a kid. Mm. And then when your grandparents, when you talk to them about that, if they're still lucky enough to be alive, they say we were writing with fucking quill and ink well when we were, <laughs> when we were kids. Like the biro was modern form of technology. Yeah, like that yeah. was just unthinkable to have something with that would self-contain its ink. So I often look at these and I talk about that in a, in a form of frustration because I wish I had it earlier. But let me just say I'm glad I have a better comprehension of it now because, you know, there's been an earlier session where you said I wish I could go back in time or dig my old dogs up and have them back with me so I could apologize. Well, I wish I could do the same. I wish I could say I'm sorry that I thought you were stupid. You know, I didn't realize this was a lot of me impregnating my will onto you but getting it so wrong because I didn't understand it and I was looking at it through my comprehension, but I didn't take into effect how you thought about the situation and why you were doing this behaviour and then punishing you unproductively and unfairly because I felt that that was the right thing to do at the time. Yeah, and I think it's difficult when we're trying to sort of bring unity and cohesion to mm. the dog training world. It's difficult in two ways because I like I want to use the correct language because I think you know words are important and the more accurately you can describe these techniques the better people will understand them but people weaponize those words as well oh yeah so like even just saying that you'll punish a dog and you know aversives and that kind of stuff like that carries an emotional weight to a lot of people that doesn't allow them to hear actually what you're saying yeah but I also I don't like it when people hide from those words, right? So like negative reinforcement has to be aversive to work, right? Mm. But aversive doesn't have to be horrendous. So, you know, like sitting here is mildly aversive to me. This hurts my back. Yep. I, I want to not be doing this. I, I need to break out of this behavior and do another one just standing up. But that's aversive to me. And I'm not in a rush, Right, like it's not like I'm. I need to put an end to all of this. It's not like. Uh, it's not like I'm stressed out by it. But it's there. I'm aware of it, and that technically is aversive. And even though it's only annoying, right? But it's technically aversive. And I think when people we we try and hide from those words because those words get used as weapons against us, and then it shows a lack of understanding because we're trying to say, oh, it's negative reinforcement. You know, it's just a little tickle. He wants to turn it off, and then people go. But that's not how it works, right? Mm. So we get it from both ends. We all need to be emotionally unattached to the words and use them correctly to describe these things. And I think that's where it allows us to get deeper into it and have the conversation at a level that it can be understood. Mm. Because you're spot on that for the majority of, you're right, there's maybe tens of thousands of people that this is applicable to, but there's millions, billions maybe. The high stakes group is like a drop in the ocean yeah. of people who don't. Like considerably, when you look at that from a perspective, it's kind of like the moon compared to the sun. Yeah. That's the difference in comparison on size and ratio of what you're looking at at a percentage. Yeah, and I think – Part of the issue is for the general public who will hear us talk about how to bring on the stand from the sit and the three ways that when that doesn't happen, the, the three techniques that you have, and I still have much more to say about that and the risks of each and all that kind of stuff. There's still much more to say. Mm. 
it just goes over people's head and it goes into the irrelevant point. And then they would say, well, who cares whether he doesn't stand correctly from the sit, right? And from their point of view with their dog, that is irrelevant. Mm. Like who gives a shit? If your dog can't even recall, wondering whether he can change positions accurately is totally irrelevant. But for many people, these behaviors that we would teach the stand from the sit is just our behavior to layer in the communication system into the dog for other behaviors that you're going to need of him later on. Mm. Right. So like it creates the overall picture of effective, tight, reliable communication with the dog, especially when you've taught a dog to bite people or, you know, like things like that, where it's like, Hey, I need to really be able to control what my dog does. I need Mm. him. I need, he's still a sentient being. He's not a robot. He still has to make decisions for himself, but it behoves me to have the clearest communication that I possibly can with the dog. That's key. Yeah. Yeah. That's key. And, and I think for the most part, like for the average dog owner, if you've got sloppy communication with the dog and the dog kind of does what you say sometimes provided he's a nice dog and there's no big behavioral concerns, it's no biggie. Right. Mm. And that's the majority of people. Certainly Mm. that was me in the past with dogs. Like I really just had good dogs and they weren't highly trained, but they just kind of fitted really well into my life. They came back vaguely when I called them, but I only ever took them to places where it wasn't a big deal if they didn't come back. And, mm. you know, they come back in their own time. You put the leash back on and off you go. Like, it's no big deal. And that's the majority of people. But for people who really want to train dogs effectively, or if you wanted to be one of those people, but you ended up with a dog that doesn't want to be one of those dogs, that's where this becomes really important to you, right? And by teaching the dog the mechanisms of like, hey, here's how you interpret pressure in position changes. Now the dog understands that pressure and we can use it in other places. And so my dog's on his way to like, he's off leash and he sees something that he's the trigger and he's going to go on attack. Well, I want to be able to give my dog a down command in that moment and have him understand it. Right. Mm, mm. And similarly, like if I'm going to give my dog a lot of freedom, like I do, like my dogs go off leash in an area that is off leash and allowed, but also has cars within it. And the only people driving cars are there. People also bring their dogs. So everybody's pretty cautious when they drive around. It's very little instance of a dog being hit by a car, but because I do that, I want to be able to down my dog at distance reliably so that he doesn't recall through me in a car. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, so there's, there's lots of things like that that allows my dog to have a much better life because of that highly trained nature of him, but it's not for everyone. I get it. But speaking about this kind of stuff, I think is important and using the terms accurately so that we can agree, but then not have to be worried about the weaponization of those terms. When people say, Oh, he punishes dogs. Well, I'm like, you punish your dog too. Whether you, just don't you understand yeah, it. whether you mm. want to admit it or not, yeah. I don't care whether you're the like you're one of the people that run the force free Facebook groups that just banned today, not even allowed to discuss uh, using a vibrate collar on a deaf dog. That's off the table. Like you're not even allowed to bring Seriously, that up. Seriously, that the group. happened. Yeah, that's, I was just reading that post just there. Oh, that's disappointing. Because it could potentially be aversive, so you're not even allowed to do that. So if like if you're one of those people, stop using clickers. But you, it's the same tactile response. To <laughs> but like you're going to you punish your dog yeah, whether you want absolutely. to admit it or not. Like people yeah. who who are like, no, I would never do it. You do. You just don't understand it. And so like, I want to have the conversations with people at a level who are like, yeah, of course I like even the, you know, the staunch force free people who go, no, of course I punish my dog. I have to, but I don't do it with tools. I do it in a way that reduces the frequency and likelihood of a behavior because that's the only way that I can keep the dog safe. Right. Right. And I can give him off leash freedom. Like there's all these things, like they're the people I want to communicate with. And I think that for the most part we are right. When you hear some of the feedback that people come back to us with, like when we're having conversations with people after an episode or 
even years after some of the episodes, you and I are both having off the air conversations with people who are reaching out to us and saying, I never thought this was possible. I never considered this pathway. I have a different perspective now of even when I'm talking to people who, let's say mum and dad, pet dog trainers, because we're dealing with boarding kennels and we deal with a, a lot of a different range, we've still got a big market in the pet dog training world. Mm-hmm. For good or bad, there's a lot of people who get into dog training and decide I like it or I don't like it. I want to get into specialized dog training or not. Well, for you, you've got to decide whether you whether you enjoy paying your bills or something for some people because sometimes the specialized fields just don't exist mm. unless you're really good at your job. Yeah. So well, and you can't start in them. That's that's uh, I think where we see a lot of people go exactly. wrong. They come in thinking like this I'm, is I'm all just gonna I'm walk gonna do. in. Yeah. And it's like, nah, it just doesn't Yeah, this is like joining the army as a cadet. And then in the regular army and then going into the special forces, that's the difference between it. And I'm not insulting anybody by saying this, you earn that position. Mm. Like you earn getting in there through your hard work and your labor and your intense understanding of that. That's actually a very good example because that's what I did, mm. but you still have to go to the school of, like you do have to do basic training and you, you have, have to, to go do, to school you, of you have to do the foundation. Like work. you can streamline it for sure. You yeah. can make it faster but you, you still, still got to go through it. the you still got to go through the progress. You still got to do the work. You still got to put the foundation in. So a point that I was trying to get to was that with clients for argument's sake, now the way that I explain things to them and the conversation I have with them is I'm not so steadfast on what's important to me. I have a conversation with them about really what's important to them. Like I need to establish that when I'm sitting down and having the conversation of where are we going from here? Because there are things that are important to me. There are ways that I like to train a dog. My dogs are different to your dogs, are different to their dogs, are different to everybody else's dogs. Like the wants and needs and the desires of where I'm taking my dogs are different from everybody else for for good, for bad, for different. So that's really a connection point that I need to have with the client. And this is a suggestion that I would ask people to consider when they're going out into any market and looking at what does the client want? Like we might say, I know what you want. Can I offer some suggestions? Cause I think this will make your life better and more comprehensive with the dog. Now that I've done this, I'm finding that I'm having a much better success rate and a much least path of resistance with them because now we really understand each other rather than saying, okay, that's great, but I'm never going to do that. Now I need to understand with the client, what will you see through? What's going to make it fair for you and fair for the dog? Because if I give you a bunch of things that you're never going to do and therefore you do a terrible job of it and only end up compromising the relationship between you and the dog, this is going to be unfair to both parties. You'll be upset because you believe that the dog doesn't understand it properly. Then you'll probably look at me and say, well, you didn't train the dog properly because the dog doesn't seem to understand it properly because you've never followed through. And all that is, is it's a vicious cycle. It's a rat wheel that you've developed that you'll never get off. And what it does, it's bond diminishing. It actually starts to break down the relationship between you and the dog. And this is why it's very important. A lot of the technicality of what you've just discussed in punishment You need to layer all of this in. And at some stage, the best you possibly can, you need to formulate an understanding of what's actually happening here. Without this, these are where real and serious problems start to happen. This is where the breakdown of the relationship between you and the dog are at any level. This is where I've seen people truly fall out of love with their dog is because they just feel that there is no practical communication between the two of them anymore. This is why marriages break up. Yeah. You know, like a lot of times when relationships end is because 
one of the party or both of the parties don't understand each other anymore. You know, we've I know I know we've toyed around with this in a lot of conversations. It has to be a part of the conversation of dog training 101. Like 101 in any form of relationship building, building a business, building a relationship, getting married, training a dog has to be around effective communication. Without that, it's the breakdown of society completely. Mm. So once we understand it's like you know, when we're talking about punishment before or even teaching behaviours, getting into the learning phase, teaching phase, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that I usually found when we're working with guys from NDTF is the introduction of abstinence. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're talking about teaching phase for argument's sake and you're saying, you know, and as you pointed out earlier before, when you're in a teaching phase or a learning phase, you can't punish the dog because the dog doesn't understand it unless you're teaching for abstinence. Mm. And therefore it could be argued, well, you kind of taught the dog to do that behavior. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. But I want to finish the teaching dogs to do stuff and then we'll talk about teaching okay. dogs to not do stuff. Rounding out what I said before, you're teaching a dog to do a particular thing mm. and the dog knows it and is not displaying the behavior that you've asked for. Yep. The three options that you have is negative punishment, positive punishment, you could join those together and create like a punishment event, or you've got negative reinforcement to compel the behavior to happen. Yep. There isn't a right or a wrong one of those to do. And the the categories I think in which I put like the dogs, it's very, it's very detailed and it's very nuanced. So the easy it's your thing, understanding of it. That's, yeah, that's the best. But every learner has a different preferred method of communication and their personality and what you're teaching them is going to affect the way that I'll communicate with them. And that's why it's important to me to have the full spectrum because I don't want to just be the one size fits all Mm. in how I deal with an event gone wrong. So, you know, the classic example we say, like the time that I would use negative punishment, give a non-reward marker, reset the behavior is a young dog. But it could also be like another time that I do that is like a scatterbrain dog that's kind of not paying a lot of attention. You know those dogs that are kind of all over the place. Yep. You see that in some like highly strung Malinois, but Kelpies, cattle dogs, that kind of stuff. Border collies. Border collies yep. especially. But where they also have a very high threshold for frustration, right? Mm. So they're, they're, they're a scatterbrain dog, they're all over the place. And by constantly resetting them, resetting them, resetting them, you know, like not physically, or you could just like sort of gently put them in position, but we're still trying to be as negative punishment as possible, right? Mm. That can work great for those dogs because they get like annoyed at the idea of not achieving success that they slow themselves down and bring focus, right? Mm. So that would be a great example to use that. But then I work with some dogs that frustrates, that that are the same scatterbrain dog that frustrate very quickly and that frustration becomes aggression very quickly as well. And so one of the things that we constantly, you know, get told is that a prong collar or, you know, tools of aversion like that can cause aggressive dogs. But in a lot of instances, it can avoid the onset of that aggression when the aggression is through frustration. And we've all seen that, like, you know, the like really good, powerful working dogs that when they get mad about a situation, they look at you. And if you're not being an effective communicator with them, they look at you and they go, hey, this entire situation is aversive to me. And I can put an end to that aversion by fucking biting you. Yeah. Right. And that happens all the time. You mm. see people all the time. And especially when it's a super powerful dog with a low margin for frustration and a, like a, you know, a hair trigger for uh, aggression mm. that's been bred to do that. So with those dogs, I never want to put them in a position where they're like, oh, I didn't get it. I'll try again. I'll try something else because 
what they might try might be fucking biting you. Yeah. That's the time when I'm for sure, no matter the age of the dog, no matter, you know, like when a dog shows me that, that's where I'm going to go, hey man, here's the negative reinforcement that you're begging for mm. to help you into the correct behavior. And that's the kind of dogs that are usually like, yep, got it, right? Like that help me get it correct because it's all I- yeah, all I want mm. is the reinforcer at the end. And if you get me too if you get me too frustrated, then that's gonna come out at you as aggression. So don't allow that to happen. Yeah. And it's then, like catching lightning in a jar. Yeah. It, it needs to dissipate somewhere. You just need to have an understanding of how to direct that in that's why I said it's channeling. Yep. And yep. and you know, we've talked about how using negative punishment can be super effective mm. at creating an aversive experience. The problem can be that stopping the progression of the behavior without a positive punishment component. Mm. So if the dog, if you ask the dog to do something and he goes and does something else because that's more highly reinforced and that's where he's headed for, like he decides, no, nah, instead of going to the stand from the sit, I'm going to recall to you. Mm. Physically stopping him, you need to stop him reaching that recall because if he gets to there, he's successful, right? And he's been reinforced in the past and getting to you, you've already given the non-reinforcing marker. Giving it again isn't going to help, right? So there has to be a way to stop the progression of the behavior. And that's the time in certain behaviors and with certain dogs where I, for the life of me, can't figure out a way to do that just using negative punishment. So I have to bring in like what would be perceived in that moment as like an aversive, an aversive, like an aversive stim, right? Where, you know, not stimulus as in electronic, but stim in in any way, right? Like Mm. input to the dog because I may not be able to stop the progression of the behavior absent some positive punishment. The Mm. thing that the the alternate thing that he's chosen to do, I may not be able to stop with a non-reinforcing marker. So I need to then in that moment go, hey, you can't do that. Immediately stop that. Now we'll isolate you and we'll reset you back, right? So there is no right or wrong. It's going to be every dog. It's going to be every dog and his personality of how he likes to learn, and then there's going to be, you know, where are you at in the progressions of the behavior? One of the things that it's really- customizing. That's absolutely. what it is. And thinking and, on the fly. And working to the dog that's in front of you. Yeah, exactly. One of the things that I think is really interesting is we, we hear it quite a lot is, especially in Malinois that are like, oh, they hate to disappoint me. I can't use any form of punishment on the dog because it shuts a dog down. And for sure, we see that, right? Mm. And you see a lot of dogs that are so in tune with their handler that any form of like you say no, any sort of non-reinforcing marker can really fuck up the dog. Mm. And we see that in some really highly strong Malinois and you see it in pit bulls a lot as well, right? Because they're so affiliative. But those dogs then thrive on negative reinforcement and positive punishment because they're like, I just want to get it right. Mm. And often we hear people say, oh, I can't use those tools because look how devastating even saying no to my dog is, right? Look at the dog. And we can observe it. The dog shuts down and doesn't want to work anymore and is like yeah, visibly heartbroken because it got told no. Mm. And it can be really hard to then compete to tell those people but say, yeah, but put a prong collar on him and help him get it into the right position. <laughs> And it doesn't seem like those two things, it seems like that's the worst version of the dog shut down at the lightest version, now escalating to, yeah, we think of it as an escalation. You got to put that's the tools the on thing, and use right? it. That's the thing, right? Is the but thought it, of escalation. Yeah, but yeah. it's like, that's not escalating to that mm. dog. That is a kinder thing to do to that dog. Because, I mean, the kindest thing to do is nothing, let him run around, live his best life, whatever. But if that's not on the cards, then the next kindest thing you can do for that dog is to say, hey, I'll help you get it right, man. Mm. And a lot of those dogs that really shut down at negative punishment, really go to water over it, thrive with negative reinforcement and positive punishment because they're like, I don't let make me fucking guess. Mm. It's so important to me to get this right. Whether for the reinforcer or the relationship or whatever, I guess that's all reinforcement. 
it's so important to me to get it right. Don't leave me in the fucking dark. And that's what shuts them down, leaving them in the dark, not like punishment per se. It's the type of punishment that you're using. Yeah. So that's the thing. And sometimes we put it in the category of negative punishment is the kinder one. And I would argue often it's much more devastating. And that's why I use it so much because Mm. it's fucking effective. Mm. But sometimes it's too much. Sometimes that is like – cruel and unusual to do that to a dog. Yeah. Yeah, To a point where Mm. you could easily just give him a crank with the prong and go, Hey, knock it off. And the dog goes, yeah, yeah, got it. Right. Like I don't have to lose everything. I can just have a mild aversive experience and go like, all right, sweet. That's, that's not what you want me to do, but you're going to allow me to keep continuing. Mm. If my alternative is sometimes only to say, Hey, everything's gone from you. You can no longer be a participant. That can really fuck a dog up. Right. That can have some really long-term effects Yeah, or it can really be a highly aversive thing to a dog. So that's why I'll do it because it will work, but it depends on the dog, right? So that's what I want to finish on with those three techniques. And it's four, if you want to combine negative punishment and positive punishment together to create a punishment event, Mm. there isn't a right or a wrong. It's going to be depending on the dog where you're at in the training and what's most effective. Yeah. What's appropriate and what is going to communicate your intent most clearly to the dog. Yeah. And that's why when people say, yeah, I hear a lot of balance trainers poo-poo negative punishment as like, what are you going to do? Give the dog a timeout? And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do mm. because that's going to break his heart, right? So like they poo-poo the effectiveness of it. And then you hear a lot of people who don't use tools like force-free trainers that say, oh, it's such a mean thing to do to use negative reinforcement to guide a dog with a prong collar. And it's like, well, actually that's what he's begging you to do. He just needs help and you're leaving him alone in the dark to try and figure that shit out for himself. That's why I said earlier on, it's so important to comprehend this. Like yeah. to, you know, and you use the example, which I totally agree. Look at the dog in front of you. Totally. And that's the mistake that we're consistently making on an ongoing basis is not arriving at that understanding. Yeah. I would go further to say that deep level of understanding. Yeah. And some dogs are the opposite. Some dogs are like, no, no, get out of my way. I want to figure this out for myself. I'm enjoying the process of trying to figure out the behavior. They're offering things like, that's that's fine too, right? So that's where the negative punishment side works and you can leave the dog for a long time. You don't need to compel him because some dogs thrive in that, but others frustrate very fast. Mm. And especially I think this is where people in our position who deal with dogs that are designed to frustrate fast, um, you know, you, that's where you have to get good at that guiding pressure because absent it, the dog will get angry mm. and turn on you, right? And like we see that a lot of handler aggression isn't, yeah, we see, I see a lot of handler aggression because you know, it's very common in a lot of police dogs and that kind of stuff. And and for sure, it can be a genetic trait, though that's very, very rare. Sometimes it's because of the overuse of pressure, yep. right? It could certainly be that. People use too much pressure and the dog goes, hey, I know how to turn this off by biting you. But in a lot of instances I see, it, it's from not enough pressure mm. because the dog is like, you are not giving, you want something very specific from me. I see that. I've been bred and raised to be obsessed with the reinforcer that you're holding over me, Mm. but I cannot figure out how the fuck to get to that. So I'll just bite you instead and Mm. you'll drop the reinforcer and now it's mine. Right. So there is no right or wrong beyond the specific dog. Like we can look at a dog and a handler and say what is right or wrong, but we can't group dogs together generally and handlers together generally and say there's a right way or a wrong way. That doesn't exist. This is where the phrase help me help you comes into, into mind. Like if you're thinking it from the perspective again of the dog, the dog is really crying out for you to help it so we can help you. I mean, effectively it's helping itself. It's looking at, you know, it's, path of least resistance Mm -hmm. and bettering its situation as we all know is the reasons why dogs do what they do again i know i'm echoing here about the effectiveness of communication and why it is so important because 
once you do establish a mindset and a connective link with the dog, all of your problems start to really reduce, Mm. significantly reduce. Like when you're getting out in the training field, it becomes very reductionist because then you're looking at it and when we're talking about punishes and so forth, the successful pathway and the success between a trainer, handler, owner and their dog, whatever you want to label it and call it, whatever that is, the success pathway happens when you create the path of least resistance in everything that you're doing. And unfortunately, that's going to take time. As we talked about before, you know, like reaching special forces, you still have to go through basic infantry training, you know, like you have to start at foundation levels and work your way through. Mm. Now, your pathway might have been much shorter than Joe Smith's pathway. He might have still got in there, but it might have taken him two or three attempts to get in there and it might have taken him a couple of years where it might have taken you a year. You know, and we're just throwing figures out there. There's no accuracy to this. And it's the same thing with dog training. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to eliminate those obstacles in the path of the dog. A lot of times when I even look at negative reinforcement for argument's sake, I often look at it as a branch chain event. You and the dog are on trajectory, okay? So you have a mindset of going A to B. A to B, as we know, is a myth. It rarely happens like that. It generally is A to F or further on, depending on your understanding, depending on the dog and depending on the difficulty of the exercise. But because of this branch chain, you'll be going in a straight line trajectory. You'll veer off at one stage. Well, the dog will veer off because that's its understanding and its belief at that time. And then you will layer in some method of control to get it back on track. So what you're doing is reducing that branch chain. So it's it's gone off on branch B. You started at A, it's gone on branch B. Now we need to say B is no longer an option. We need to now work on C because B is compromised. We need to get back on behavior. C is the trajectory we're heading towards. Then you find that C is compromised. You need to work back from there and use and layer in whatever mechanism of control, et cetera, et cetera. So this is going to happen regularly. And when people look at this, they think this is a fail. No, it's not. It's life. It's Mm. just the way things work out. And you need to embrace that. What you develop and understand there is now the dog and I have a better relationship on where boundaries are with everything. Mm -hmm. So effectively for people, like you've done a very eloquent explanation of how this all ties in together, but trying to explain that to the layperson who doesn't get this, sometimes you can explain it differently so they can understand the mechanism of what they need to do in order to have a better relationship with the dog. So People look at this as perilous. They think, oh, this is terrible if this happens. No, it's not. It's actually brilliant. And it actually helps you understand where the boundaries are. This is all part of the learning system. Because not only do you learn what not to do, by doing that, you learn what to do. So once you're on that pathway, once you've corrected yourself like that, you have learned a whole bunch of things about how to effectively navigate through your environment. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah, I agree. I think the risks involved in all these things have to be acknowledged. Yes. And I think the risk with punishment and using it, whether it's positive or negative, it doesn't matter, is that there's a misunderstanding as to what. Like if it's punishment, it's effective, right? So I think a lot of the Misunderstanding and the overuse. Yeah. So, but Mm. when- That comes from misunderstanding. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, but I mean a misunderstanding, say it's done correctly. So let's, let's imagine that it's done by someone that really knows what they're doing and like a good trainer- that uses punishment. We have to acknowledge that there's risk, right? Yep. There's a risk in everything that we do for positive reinforcement as well. 
But the risk with punishment is that there's a misunderstanding from the dog as to what's being punished and he reduces a different behavior. Yep. That's the main thing. It can have effects on drive and motivation and that kind of stuff. But usually if we're clear and effective, it, that doesn't happen. Mm. It's just when the biggest risk is that the dog goes, all oh, right, like you were trying to punish the head position being incorrect in the healing because the dog consistently does the wrong thing. And he takes it as the healing altogether. And now he doesn't want to heal anymore. Mm. And there's conflict involved because you're trying to convince him to heal, but you've punished him in the past for it, right? Like that's a risk of punishment. And the risk of negative reinforcement is that the dog never learns to avoid or never bothers trying to avoid and just keeps intentionally putting himself in a position to escape, right? Mm. So I think when you're observing someone using tools of pressure, the difference between negative reinforcement and punishment is that negative reinforcement can be escaped and then avoided in the future, mm. whereas punishment can only be avoided, right? So like you've done the thing that gets you punished. It doesn't matter what you do after this. The punishment has to be completed. Mm. Even if you now try and offer me an alternate behavior, it doesn't matter, right? I have to continue the punishment because if the dog offers an alternate behavior, then that's negative reinforcement. If he offers an alternate behavior and you stop the pressure, then you compelled an action. You didn't stop an action, right? Mm. It makes something less likely to happen. You made something more likely to happen. So what we see, the risk in negative reinforcement And the is, risk of that too is you can create a superstitious behavior out of that. Of course. Mm. But the biggest risk in negative reinforcement is that the dog intentionally turns it on in order to turn it off, mm. right? And you get you see that all the time, especially with electric collars, that dogs like that go, hang on, if I do something incorrect, if I dip my head down in the healing, you'll stim me yeah. back up. And I fucking love that because that assures me I'm on the path to success, right? Because using negative reinforcement into behaviors and positive reinforcement out of behaviors and keeping the ratios correct where I always pay you really well, especially in the bite work, you see dogs that do this. The dogs are like, yeah, stim me, right? Like you see mm. dogs that are like, fuck yeah, light me up because that is just assuring me that I'm on the path to success. The, like I'll just go through that. And that's where punish, that's where like one should take the place of the other. And that's, mm. that's kind of what I'm getting at is when, if you're going down the path with one and you start to identify like, oh, this isn't going the way that I had hoped it would or I'm starting to not have the effect that I thought that I was going to have, mm. chances are you should switch to the other, yep. right? Because if the dog is intentionally dipping his head in order in the healing, for example, just so that you steam him so that he brings it back up and then you can reinforce him, then some dogs will develop that chain and go like, yep, I'm doing it. You know, the small incremental increases in negative reinforcement can just harden a dog to the point where he's like, yep, I'll take it, I'll take it. And they never get to the, the position where they decide I'll avoid that, mm -hmm. right? And if you're on that path, sometimes then it's the time to go, hey, no, I'm changing gears here. It looks to me like my dog is intentionally seeking out the onset of negative reinforcement in order to turn it off. So we're not going to give him that. I'm going to use punishment. And more often than not, that's the perfect opportunity then to use, like create that punishment event. In that, say, healing example, that's exactly the point where I would be walking along, the dog dips his head. I'd say no and turn into the dog or away from him and no longer allow him to heal. Like have someone backline him or something like that so that he can't get to me. Mm. And it's like, no, no, dude, you put an end to this healing by dipping your head down. And then I could give him a couple of like, you know, create an aversive experience where I could give him a pop on the prong and collar. And disassociate with it. Yeah. yeah. And be like, hey, because you dipped your head, this pressure comes. And the dog's like, yeah, I know. Pressure comes when I dip my head. I don't give a fuck. I mm. like it. But then you go, no, no, but you no longer get to turn this off by healing more. Right. Mm. And that's not going to lead to the reinforcer that you want. Which is what you were doing with Remy at one yeah. stage when you're out there and you're disassociating yeah. with him and saying, okay, you just you, fucked up. I'm moving away from yeah. you. You can't be in this position yeah, you anymore. You stop the session. You stop the session. Yeah. yeah. And that's because for the most part, he interprets signals of pressure as activation. So they mm. excite him. Yep. And so 
in that moment, the only way that I can effectively punish him and reduce the frequency of what he's doing is a loss. Yeah. But that's what I mean. Like you were there, that broke his heart. Like that yeah, fucked him yeah, up. It does. Like that, he just, he, you can actually see the look on the dog's face like, oh, fuck. Yeah. This is cataclysmic that yeah. this is happening. And it was no pressure. It was no inputs other than that he was stopped. He mm. was like on a flat collar, someone held the back line and he couldn't stay he just in, realized like, in the hill position. Everything that he wanted to do, the trajectory going forward, which was removed from him entirely. Yeah. But by your absence from him, yeah, you know, and you could see him like looking around, like saying, "Please come back to me. I want this to continue." Yeah. But he has to understand that it's a punishment event. That's right. And mm. in the past, when I just used pre- it was barking in the healing. If I give him a pop with a prong collar, that just excites him more, makes yeah. him more likely it to loads bark. him up. Yeah. So yeah. that's where you go. Oh shit! I've got negative reinforcement. Felt like the right tool for three years. It felt like it was the right tool. But now I'm at the point where I'm like, nah, it's not. And I'm going to change and turn, mm. like fix this issue. I'm going to totally recreate and, and go for a punishment event. And, and in that instance, it was a negative punishment event. That's kind of all my spiel on teaching dogs to do stuff. I think now what you were saying on abstinence, where you're using punishment to stop behaviors rather than like having an issue with the dog, not doing something specific when you ask for it. As I was saying before, that really created a highlight in discussion because we often talk about in the teaching learning phase, the abstinence of punishment. Like you can't do it because the dog doesn't understand the behavior. Even though there are forms of punishment happening around that, some that you just can't avoid it. And it's not even that you understand it as a punishment at the time. So you try and limit that as much as possible. But we're really getting into the weeds when we're starting to understand that. The main thing is anytime something new that we want the dog to perform, like a skill that we think is important to us, that the dog and us is going to have a better relationship because of it. Anytime we're introducing that, of course, it's going to be unknown to the dog. The dog is simply going to be just spinning its wheels in the backyard or in its house or whatever it's doing until such time as we induce that cue and the behavior that's associated with it. Everyone knows that. We've been talking about that for years. The problem now is... And we call that teaching for action. That's Mm -hmm. a new action, a new skill that the dog is going to learn 101 with you. So we've established that the dog is doing that beautifully. Now, when let's say, for example, and this is mainly for pet dog people and so forth, but it can be used multi-application depending on what you want to use. Let's say, for example, the dog is jumping up on us and it's something that we've never taught the dog to do. It's learned it through some path of success at some stage of its life, but suddenly now the dog is learning jumping up is highly appetitive. Mm -hmm. Okay. If I jump up on you, I'm going to get reinforced from it. Now, a lot of times when people rescue dogs, this is the problem. The Mm -hmm. dog comes in and jumps on them and they go, Oh no, I don't like this. I don't approve of this, but the dog loves it. Yeah. And you generally find when you retrace the roots of the dog, if you're able to do that at all, that at some stage in the dog's life, the dog has found that this is highly rewardable as a cute little puppy jumps up, gets picked up. Everyone makes a fuss. They run around the room screaming and it's been a big success pathway for the dog. But the new owner doesn't understand any of that. They have no history of it, but they want it to stop. Even though you could argue that it's been pre-learned, it's a pre-learned behavior, it's still something where you would look at it in the new setting as teaching for abstinence. Teach the dog to abstain from behavior that it's doing, that you no longer want that behavior to continue. Primarily what we're doing is forcing an extinction event upon the dog. So we're now teaching the dog this behavior is totally undesirable. You can no longer do it. There is no acceptable pathway for you to do that. That's confronting for people when you're talking about teaching phase. 
because you might be talking about a young dog, a dog that you've just got, and it's doing something like pulling on the lead or something like that. Well, you can't whisper to the dog, don't do this. You could argue that I could use negative punishment, and every time the dog does it, I can pop the dog away, but you may or may not be effective in doing this because as the desirable stimuli starts to present itself in the field and the dog starts pulling on the lead again and then it starts to get in a self-induced negative reinforcement, therefore this is a, a vicious cycle where the dog is just going to learn pulling on the lead gets me what I want. Yeah. You know, because eventually you'll give in, you'll feel sorry for me and therefore I can pull on the lead. So when I'm doing this type of work with a dog and I pop the dog back and the dog starts to reduce what it's doing and you could fairly say that that is a combination between positive punishment and negative reinforcement. But effectively, what I want the dog to do is stop the behavior entirely. Yeah. So more so a positive punisher, because I just want the dog to stop the behavior. Then uh, what I want the dog to do after a period of time is change its mindset entirely. Now, then you could argue, well, that's negative reinforcement because the dog is stopping one behavior only to lead in another one. Fine. I'm happy to accept either pathway there. I'm happy to accept that if it's effective in stopping all behaviors, it's a positive punishment. And if the dog moves into a more desirable behavior, then you could say negative reinforcement. Good. Whatever. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I think that's where use of punishment gets really funny and say jumping on people, right? Mm. And this Mm. is one of the things that really divides a lot of pet dog trainers because you'll have balanced trainers just say, give them a positive punishment, stop that immediately. And then you have people who would say, yeah, that's terrible. You never do that. And you reinforce not doing it, right? Mm. Turn your back on him. Yeah, all those kinds of things. But the real way to do it is both, Yeah, right? So Combine them. Yeah, and Mm. so from my point, like I've done that countless times because that's that's when you first walk in, when someone's got no matter the issue with their dog, when you walk into their house, the dog jumps on you and you go, okay, first thing we've got to fix. Just this alone will change the way you live with the dog Mm. and like that will alter the path that you're on. No matter the issue I'm here to deal with, stopping your dog jumping all over your visitors is going to change everything like that's going to put us on a new branch plan. So all I do is I say, put the dog on a leash, right? I walk up. Of course the dog wants to jump on me because he's friendly. And the moment his front feet come off the ground, I take a step back. That's negative punishment, right? I'm taking away from him the thing that he wanted, which was me. Just he's friendly. He wants Mm. to jump all over me. So I take a step back. When he's calm, I walk in and now I'm using positive reinforcement for the correct behavior. So I think that's part of the issue with having camps is people are like, no, you've got to use positive reinforcement for the correct behavior. I go, yeah, that's true. And then there's other people that say, no, you've got to punish the wrong behavior. And I say, that's also true, mm. right? Like mm. I, 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 I can do both those things yep. in the same three second interval. Mm. I can, even the dog's feet come off the ground, I take a step backward, that's punishment. Yep. And a lot of people do that, right? Like that's what most level-headed balance trainers or not even balance trainers, like that's what most level-headed people are doing. But the issue becomes when the experience of hitting the end of the leash now, when the dog jumps and the person's holding the leash, that's positive punishment, right? Mm -hmm. So now I don't want to do that because I'm a person that doesn't want to use any positive punishment. How do I stop the progression of the behavior? So now I'm stuck. I can't tell that person. Like usually when you say, turn your back, the dog's like, a challenge. <laughs> right? it's like, and they run around to the Yeah, they'll be yeah. like, this is fun. This is making it more difficult, right? Yeah. So the idea is I need to be able to exactly- Which is also a, negative reinforcement. Yeah, it, yeah. and, and he's going to you know promote yeah. a more powerful version of the behavior. Right. So this is where you know I say that 
you've got to be able to stop the progression of the behavior. Mm. And in a lot of instances, that can be really difficult to do mm. without using some form of positive punishment. And all reasonable trainers, I don't care whether you call yourself plus or balance, they're going to put a dog on a leash and they're going to let the dog hit the end of the line on the flat collar. Like, and that's going to be aversive enough in that experience. Mm. And if it's not, then maybe that's a time where you need to put him on a prong collar or something. So he gets a, a true, more averse, aversive experience at the end of the line. Mm. But that's where people who are like, no, I acknowledge that is positive punishment. I see that regardless of whether it's a flat collar or not, because it, they hit the end, it's aversive. Some dogs will be like, oh no, that's bad. And then kind of sit there and then you walk straight in, you pat him. That's where some people go, no, I'm not prepared to do that. And that's where you're like, well, you will fail. That's, mm. that's the point of failure because like your ideology is beating your ability to train the dog. And now if you're left with only positive reinforcement, I shouldn't say you'll fail, but you're going to have a fucking hell of a time. You're going to spend weeks fixing something that I could have done right there in a session, right? Because you're going to have to do differential reinforcement. You're going to have to create when someone comes in the house, the dog has to go to its bed or to a specific spot. And you're going to have to create all those circumstances. Whereas I want a dog that can still run over to people, but keep his four feet on the floor and look up at them smiling like, hey, when you're ready, I'll take that path that you're going to give me, right? And I can teach that in a session. That's a question that's come up a lot in different camps of training and- I've outraged people by answering this question and other people have done it as well, but it creates a springboard of discussion, which is healthy and unhealthy sometimes, but I still feel it's the best answer and the right answer to give. And the question is, what's the best way to punish a dog? My answer to that, the most effective way. Yeah. The most effective way, well, that will vary from dog to dog, from handler to hand, from situation to situation. But the most effective way is the shortest way and the one that the dog has the best grasp of. This is punishment. This behavior needs to stop because it never leads to anything good. When I abandon all hope of this behavior and then go on to something else, I find that not only do I not get punished anymore, but then I get reinforced. Like there's hope in doing these other behaviors. There's no hope in doing these behaviors. Yeah. You've explained that before. You did a great job of explaining it many episodes ago when we really got into the weeds of talking about hope versus no hope. But that really needs to be what people need to adapt. The best and most effective method is the one that the dog really understands and the one that has the least resistance to. So for me, I hate, I really fucking hate, I hate having to repeat it time and time and time again. To me, that hits me in the heart. Yeah. Like seeing a dog dabbling in punishment and nagging punishment that's ongoing and it just seems to be cyclic all the time. Like you just see this person doing the same thing with, and it's almost for me, it's combined with the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result where you're really not going to see a different result because there was no true effectiveness there. The unfortunate thing is, is the dog starts to kind of lean away from the behavior, but not entirely But then as soon as there's a glimmer of hope, the dog snatches back at it and Mm -hmm. goes straight back into the behavior, if not worse. So one of the risks around, let's stick with your example of a dog jumping on someone coming in the home, Mm. is that we sometimes hear that punishment, if it's to be effective, will be because you create a negative association with the person. Yeah. Right? And that's possible. That can often lead to then, you know, what you hear and you certainly see in the forums, people talk about if the dog jumps on someone and you give it a pop with a prong collar, it makes the association to that person and the the prong collar. And now the dog doesn't want people to come in the home Mm. because that means that they're going to get pronged. And like, I can paint a picture where that could happen. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, but if that were to happen, that's really bad training. That's not the problem of punishment. I would say 
The problem of timing. Well, at timing for sure, but mm. also it probably wasn't the way to train that dog because if he's going to turn from jumping on people happy to now I no longer want people coming in the house and I'm aggressive about, I, I want to stop them coming in the house in order to avoid that prong collar that they are going to deliver me. Mm. I'm like, well, that's a serious nerve issue in that dog. Like that's a dog that you've misread that situation to even do that. Yeah. Right. Because yeah, yeah, that's a good point because that dog wasn't jumping on that person through excitement and happiness. That's mm. a nerve issue. It was probably appeasement in the world where that turns into an aggressive dog. The jumping on that person was probably an appeasement behavior. Not, not a, like, I'm happy to see this person give me a cuddle. I love it. It was like, hey, I'm worried about how things are going to go down here. Here's, Here's what, my coping mechanism. Yeah. Mm. And now I've interpreted mm. you as having given me some sort of aversive. And the best way for me to avoid that aversive in the future is to no longer allow you into the home. Right. So that's bad training. If that's what happened. And I, I promise that has happened with people. Yeah. That's probably why. And you probably shouldn't have done that in the start. You've misread that dog. But then the issue is, I think a lot of people think that, like certainly I saw a post the other day where someone was getting into Justin Rigney about the timing of punishment and just like carrying on about all this nonsense about how it had to be at the exact moment of the unwanted undesired behavior and kind of just, that's exactly how that situation would unfold where you let the dog get themselves into trouble so that you could punish the dog while he's performing the action because Mm -hmm. the textbook said that it has to be at the time of the action. But the action started ages ago. Yeah. The action started at the 10 foot from the person when he went to approach them. And that's the time to apply that positive punishment where the association can only be to the behavior. It's and not then also be- show the dog a picture of what the desirable greeting looks like. Yeah. And mm. like that one example is so easy. Whether you're going to do it on a harness yep. ranging up to a prong collar and everything in between, it doesn't matter. It depends on the dog as to which one of those you would use mm. and how committed he is to the behavior and the, the strength of the person holding the lead and the size of the dog. There's there's lots of variables that would decide on which is the effective way to restrain the dog. But the idea is that the negative, the positive punishment component would come from the dog hitting the end of the line, which we need to be reasonably aversive to an extent, right? It doesn't have to be over the top, but it needs to be the dog's like, um, at the minimum, can't get to where he's going. We has to be restrained into one way or another. Mm. But the negative punishment component comes from our helper who's going to take a step back and take away what the dog wanted, which was his own presence. Mm. And then the dog will alter his behavior and then he can take a step forward and that's the positive reinforcement component of it. And like it just is a feathering of that. You take a step in. If he lifts his feet again, he hits the line. He You take a step back, he settles. And it takes minutes and you can teach a dog not to jump on people. Yeah. And the dog needn't develop any bad feelings about the person. He's only going to be to his behavior and finding out what brings him success. Like he's going to be extremely operant in that moment. He's going to be like, this brings, this takes away what I want. This brings what I want. This takes away. And he's going to feather those a few things. He's going to figure it out. And then real quickly, he's going to have it. And then, but the trick is, like I say, it relies on that basis of restraining the dog. And most people, most like people who would call themselves plus R trainers are going to do that. They get like, no problem. going to do that. It's the people that are like, no, they acknowledge that is punishment. I'm not doing that. And I'll use a differential reinforcement schedule. It's like, it might work. It might, but it's going to take like six weeks. You're going to have to train all these things. You're going to have to have a helper person come all these fucking times. You're going to do have to do so much work for what could have been achieved quicker and probably with less stress and confusion on the dog in a session. I was just about to say, it's the inconsistencies around it, which prolong the issue. Yeah. And And then you think you're ready. Someone comes over, the dog goes like you, like, this is it. I've cued the doorbell. I've, I've, 
to put so much reinforcement <laughs> into going to the bed. I've cued the doorbell as a command to go to the bed. This is it. It's taken me six weeks. I've had this person come into my home three days a week at $100 a session for six weeks, right? Like this is it. Today's the day. Someone's coming over for real. They ring the doorbell. The dog goes running over to the bed. He sits there waiting for treats. Someone walks through the door they've never seen before and he jumps the fucking bed and goes and tackles the person, right? <laughs> and then variable reinforcement schedule. Huzzah. You're not even back to square one. You're back like you're in the negatives, mm. right? Like now you'll, you strengthen that behavior so fucking much. And the person didn't think that was going to happen. So they get knocked over because you're like embarrassed. You laugh about it and you're like, oh, it didn't work. And the dog's reinforced even further. <laughs> like that's what we see. Yeah. I've seen that scenario played out so many times. And you're like, would you like to fix this now? Because we can fix this right now. And the dog's going to be so much happier. He's going to have a little bit of uncomfortableness as I take a step, as I feather back and forth while you hold him on the leash. That's going to be a little bit aversive to him. He's going mm. to really dislike that for five minutes and then we're back to normal life. <sighs> That's my head in. Yep. The other one is the digging one. So I wanted to, the other thing on punishment was I think we talk about like the hand of God correction, say for digging and stuff like that and whether you should be involved in the punishment and not. And in the past, I've you know, given that advice, you know, when dogs are digging, they say, oh, you know, this is a, provided you've done everything else, let's make that assumption that like yep. the dog's fulfilled and he's not bored and, you know, he's got toys and blah, blah, blah. We've done all those things where the dog continues to dig. Mm. It used to be, and still a lot of the times people will talk about that hand of God correction. You just give the stim without any command, the dog makes the association to his behavior and that works, right? Yep. But I've gone away from that because I think I, especially in environmental stuff like that, where it's in the home, if I'm going to punish the dog, I would much prefer the dog know it comes from me than from the act of God, like from his behavior. Because, Why not both? Well, because he's going to know that it came from his behavior because I'm going to mark it and I'm going to punish him. But I want him to know that I don't want him to do that. Mm. Because say it's you use an electric collar and that's a very common use of it. The dog's digging and give him a steam. He goes, okay, I made that association. I won't do that. But there's a reliance. There's There has to be context around that. And the dog will be, it, you have no place in it because you didn't say anything. It was just the collar. If the dog is collar wise and most dogs become that way is that he'll go, Oh, wed this electric collar on. I, I shouldn't dig. Right. Mm -hmm. And it'll work, be totally effective. But if I make myself a part of that picture in the past, I was concerned then that the dog would then go, well, the boss isn't here. So he can't punish me. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I can dig in his absence. But I feel like if your relationship and all the rest of your training is in check, I feel like it's more effective absent the context that you can deliver the punishment because the dog knows you don't want him to do it. Whereas like if he's digging and he just gets the act of God stim, he goes, this collar stims me when I dig. Mm -hmm. And when I don't wear this collar, I'm clear live to dig. Right. But if I am a part of it, he goes, Pat doesn't like it when I dig. And I like Pat, even though he's not here, I'm not going to do it. And I think that that has more effect. I'm conflicted on that one. I'm not going to say it would work or it wouldn't work because, to be honest, I don't entirely know. But I have conflicted feelings on that one because although I do agree about the dog wearing the collar and having an association with that, mm -hmm. totally, totally support that. I don't know whether or not I agree about the dog saying, I like you, so I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I probably feel that that's wishful thinking, but I'm not saying that that's not right. I reckon 
Like it's not going to be the case with all dogs. I think the relationship has to be there and the training everywhere else has to be there. But it's one of those ones where you've got to choose your poison because well, that, if I was going to swing on the argument, I would probably say I'd swing on that point. Yeah. And there's weaknesses to both mm. and you've got to choose your poison. Yeah. Right? Like it's, it's a, that's a tough situation. Like that's a hard one. The only way that I could truly say that you would get completion and, and true effectiveness of that behavior is when the dog came to the conclusion this is no longer effective for me to do this. Like yeah. no longer supportive or rewarding to do this. Like it's a total shit show for me when I do this behavior. And you could say, well, that sort of propels into every other point of the argument. But the difficulty in that sort of situation is when there is absence of most other stimuli and the dog reaches a point of frustration, digging itself is, and it can largely be an innate behavior, mm. something that's truly in certain dogs, like Jack Russell's, for argument's yeah. sake, it's truly part of the genetic pathway of the dog. I think it's spot on. I think mm. with some dogs, there's no getting rid of it permanently, no matter what yeah. you do. It's always going to come It's reductionist. Back. It, yeah. you, it might be two years later, mm. might be, yeah, but it will- It's a calling. It's, yeah. a, it's genetically hardwired, and it's a calling upon some breeds. I can't tell you how many people this has been a very, very frustrating conversation with. There have been times where you find that you get you're moderately successful with a large part of the population, and there are other times where you just find exactly as you put it, where the dog will revisit the behaviour and it's very frustrating, and it sort of calls upon <laughs> the relationship between you and the client when they're saying, "I thought you gave me a guarantee that this was going to happen." First and foremost, I'd never guarantee that I'm going to totally eliminate those behaviours. Mm. I always stipulate that I'm definitely going to help the owner improve it, but there is a wavering branch tree of how this is going to go down, you know, depending on their commitment, depending on the dog, depending on the level of understanding and training that the trainer offers them. There's so many variables that come into this pathway. And, you know, like I've spoken to other people that say, oh, I've completely cured it. It's easy. You just do this, this, and this. And I say, here's a client for you. I'd like you to have a go at that. And then they'll meet their nemesis. Yeah. I've had exactly that same sort of thing where I've believed that there is a way to do it or even, you know, like a couple of variations that I would introduce to the situation only to find that the dog is contradicting everything that I believed was the pathways to improve that one. So. I too would truly like to believe that because of the dog's relationship with me, the dog would look at it and say, we don't like that. So we don't like that. You Mm. know, like this is a nice thing, not a Mm. me thing. I think that that was something that I would love to subscribe to, but I have difficulty with it. Just knowing the, I think it depends on how you live with the dog. And because Mm. some dogs will be like, I don't give a fuck what you like. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And 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 that's where, that's where I'm conflicted in it because that's, let's say for argument's sake, Macho and Randy, I think if I was going to swing on that argument, I would say Macho would be more like that because he's a much more sensitive dog and yeah. he's much more considerate. Where Randy would be like, no, I'm going to dig the hole because yeah. fuck you. Well, in that and, instance. And it's not because he doesn't love me. It's because he just thinks that this is, I would rather do this and have you chase me around the backyard. That's right. That's, see, that's reinforcement though. So he would yes. do it to call you out. Yes. He would be like, yes. come, and, come and try and punish me because yeah. that in itself is reinforcing. Mm. And I think- your Jack Russell example is a great one to talk about like punishment in isolation. Like you get a lot of people that are like, Oh, we'll just punish away that behavior. Mm. And it's like, well, that doesn't always work. Like you can suppress it, Liam, but oh, you, can't, Liam. you can't necessarily get rid of it. And it, 
something that has been suppressed can very easily come back. Yes, it's and, easily recallable. Yeah, and mm. in, in those instances, you're better off providing the outlet. Like like really understanding to the dog, like why do you do this? What do you get from it, right? Like yep. Mother Nature tells you to dig. But so here's a place you can dig. Yeah, mm. like does Mother Nature really tell you to dig or do you want a hole in the ground? Yep. You know, like so because we can, we can make a hole. Like if you want an underground den, we can give you a, something that – feels that way. You know what I mean? Like that's where you got to I do know what you mean. And I just need to quickly interject there because that's a very good point. And that's in the past where I have met my nemesis dogs in that. What we've done is agreed on having a dig pit. Yeah. So for dogs that just can't get it out of their system, such as Jack Russell's and Foxy's and dogs like that, I've said to them, what we're better off doing is providing a space where the dog can dig. Like yeah. we create a sand pit or something like that. Yeah. And then we say to the dog, if you need to get it out of your system, go there. If you go anywhere else, you're going to get your ass figuratively kicked for it, yeah, yeah, you know, like not physically. Fundamentally, this is where the success of teaching dogs to go to the toilet in one spot. Yeah. A large amount of people, if they work on this and they're consistent and they're regular, they can teach the dog, this is where you can go to the toilet. Like fairly in the backyard, I have to provide you true and adequate space for you to go and relieve yourself. And this is the this is where you do it. If I catch you going anywhere else, you're in trouble. Yeah. Okay, because this is mine and that's yours. And you can have that and you can do whatever you want to do on that. Yeah. I think that's fair because that will often teach you to have Again, when we're talking about improving the relationship between you and the dog, that will teach you to have a better relationship with your dog because you've established guidelines of of what you can and what you can't do rather than you just can't do anything. Mm. And that establishes, I think that creates a bit of fuckery and a bit of establishment in the dog's head because then it thinks to itself, I just don't know what to do. Yeah. And I'm lacking control in this situation. Therefore, what bleeds out of the dog at that point in time is complete chaos. Yeah, agreed. And I think, like, you know, to summarize the whole thing, no matter what techniques you want to use to teach a dog to do stuff or to not do stuff, clarity and consistency is really all that's important. If the dog understands it and you can do it every time until the dog no longer either always does what you want him to do or never does what you don't want him to do, if you can be clear that he understands it and you're able to do that, then it'll work. Mm. It doesn't matter what technique you use, but it's making sure that you choose the one that you can fit into that template. Yep. And that's different depending on the behavior, depending on the dog, depending on lots of different things. So that's why I think choosing a camp and saying, no, I treat that in this way. Is, that's it can't be absolute. It's too reductionist. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but what if this? Yeah. Right? Yeah. <sighs> Long episode. We've bounced around a lot. But I know I think- it's a very important subject matter and one that we dabble in and out of over multiple episodes. But really it is because there is such a limitation of understanding on this. And this is where really I do emphasize the point of being good to great. You know, like you have to arrive at a point, like if you want to be truly effective at this, you really need to study it. You really need to embrace it. But with an open mind and be like. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, with an open mind on what's available and how to do it. So if you want to create less problems and less conflict in your training overall, then you have to understand we've really talked about how the dog perceives a lot of this and really what you you really need to, at all levels of your dog training, you really need to understand what the perception of the dog is at the end of the day because that's what you're pushing input into. Yeah. So you're giving input and the dog's giving output. Mm-hmm. So it's a measure of those two things that are happening at, at all times. So if you're looking at this process and then thinking, I only need to know so much about it, you're fooling yourself. That's the point where you really will have a breakdown in the relationship between you and your dog. Totally. Mm. All right, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, just like, rate, share, subscribe. All that's super helpful. But tell a friend or mm. on the bus. Like yes. just 
tell the person next to you, hey, you should listen to this podcast. Yeah, be creepy. Or about do it. what I do is go and stick the sticker on a urinal in a in a place <laughs> where. But, <laughs> so let me tell you what I did there. I was Grey Gums Cafe, which is my <laughs> local haunt. When I go motorbike riding, yeah, yeah. I had a sticker in my pocket, and I was walking to the urinal to go to the toilet. I had the sticker there, and I thought, oh, I'll stick this on the cistern tank. Yeah. I know Kim, the owner, she'd be cool with it. So I stuck it on there, and. You would not believe how many photos I get from the community <laughs> saying, I was on Putty Road and I went to Grey Gums Cafe and I saw your sticker yeah. on the urinal. Hey, so. Glenn, found your phone number on a <laughs> toilet wall. <laughs> <laughs> That's the modern version. It's not like call for a good time. It's, hey, hey, listen to my podcast. <laughs> It's like Dumb and Dumber when Jim Carrey's in the toilet and he goes, um, if you want man love, be here at 2.15 sharp. And he looks at his watch and it's 2.14. <laughs> That's such a good movie. Yeah. All right. If you want to support the show, best way to do that is Patreon. Mm. Jump into there. There's loads of information and you guys are paying for a lot of video content that comes out. Yep. Maybe by the time you're hearing this, my PSA highlights reel will be out and that's thanks to you guys if you like that highlights reel maybe like say thank you by jumping into patreon that's one way to do it yeah uh, if absolutely. you're not already in there if you want to support the show in another way by looking cool you can get some cool merch and like i say we're we're on the hunt for a new graphic design bite sports curious anybody yep. who wants to throw their hat in the ring and give us one of those that we can whack onto t-shirts uh, you'll get showered with merch and people will be wearing your cool design. Hey, you know Linus Tech Tips? Yes, very well. He's one of my go-tos for looking at gadgets and computers mm-hmm. and so forth like that. Totally. His Patreons bought him a fucking building. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> he's got like a brand new lab, which he's calling Lab One or something like that. I saw that. that. I didn't realize the Patreon paid his for His Patreon people bought him that fucking building. I guess that's the difference between tech us. tips and dog training. Well, he has 14 million <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, followers. He's very good. So 14 million is probably a lot more than us. We have a few, but we don't have 14 million. Imagine getting to the point where you could do this as a full-time job. Amazing. Yeah, it'd be great. Amazing. Can't do it on our own, though. <laughs> no, no pressure, Patreon people. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've never taken money from it. We just buy gear to make the show better. That's we've right. Never we've actually, never taken a wage. It's we've all, never actually taken any money it out It all sinks back into our tech. Yeah, you guys just buy us more stuff to make you more content. It's a good deal, I think. It is a great deal, and I... I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, if someone wanted to buy me a Lamborghini, I'd take it. Or just a lab that we could actually set up and do, and hire a whole crew of people in and yep. make this a full-time game. Well, we, we need to get the whisper room going. Yep. All right. Get cool merch. Buy yourself socks and underpants, all that kind of stuff. Yep. Tapestry, uh, tapestry, tapestry. Tapestry. Yep. Jump into the discussion group on Facebook. That's where you can get loads of information. That's constantly growing group. There's loads of uh, cool conversations in there. Yep. Do a little searchy search before you go posting questions because probably it's been answered. So you could just check that out. Yep. But, you know, also don't be afraid of posting questions. People give really nice answers in there. Some really technical and detailed stuff I see people putting in mm-hmm. there, which I really appreciate. Um, sometimes I go to answer something and I'm like, oh, that, that would, there's no point. It's been totally answered here. Yep. And if you want to get in contact with us directly, choose an email. We are info at thecanonparadigm.com. Goodbye.